The copyright-expired song you're hearing is Georgette by Lou Brown and Ray Henderson. We're not going to do biographies of Lou Brown and Ray Henderson because their lives weren't filled with chaos. Let me summarize their Wikipedia pages. They were two dudes. Lou Brown did get on a steamship leaving Odessa when he was five, like everyone else in the music industry back then. As we have learned from this podcast, to make it in music back then, you either had to hop a steamship from Odessa or hide yourself in a hay cart headed north. Those were the only ways you got in back then. Lou Brown got on a steamship when he was five, but he did it with his family. Lame. He must have gotten so much shit when he got to New York. Like, a little baby can't do a transatlantic voyage by yourself. You got to come with your mommy, even though you're five. Jesus, you're five. You fit in a crate. It's kind of the perfect age to hop a steamship. But no, he came using a ticket his parents bought him like a total square, so we're not going to talk about him. Instead, in the preamble here, I would like to ask the question, what is selling out? What is selling out? I'm going to try to quickly come up with a definition of the phrase selling out, and I'm wondering if you agree with the definition I come up with. And then the second question would be, I wonder if you think that I'm doing it. And I bring this up today because I believe this will be the first episode that has an ad, a commercial, read by me in the middle. I don't know for sure. I've got a guy who does the ad stuff. I don't do the ad stuff. But I've recorded a commercial. I tried to make it funny. I hope it's not totally dead air. But I recorded a commercial. It's going to be dropped in the middle, either this episode or the next episode. So it seems like a great time to ask, what is selling out? The first conception I had of selling out was when I was 15, 16, so this is the mid-90s, and my uh, thought on it was, anything that's popular, that those people sold out. That band, that TV show, movie, whatever. If anybody liked it, <laughs> then you did it wrong. What a fucking idiot I was. <laughs> Just anything popular. Ooh, fuck you. Like, the goal of somebody who's making something is for literally nobody to ever encounter it, like it, enjoy it. If that happens, and only if that happens, do you go, ah, success. <laughs> so if I had thought for two seconds, I would have realized that the rule has to be a little more sophisticated than popular equals sold out. It definitely has something to do with changing who you are, right? It's like you exist, you have made a thing, let's say it's a painting, you have made a painting... And someone comes along and says, you know, if you put one more tree in that painting, I can sell it for a million dollars. Do you do it? Now, I guess you could say an artist who won't do it, an artist who says, no, this painting has exactly 94 trees in it. That's how I envisioned it. If I was to make it 95 trees, it would be crap. So take your million dollars and go to hell. Okay, then. <laughs> I, I suppose that person is a true artist. In a way, I take my hat off to them. And then the other extreme would be if somebody comes to the painter and says, Hey, I'll give you 20 cents if you add uh, Hitler and Jesus shaking hands. And they go, 20 cents? Yeah, absolutely. No problem. Okay. We now have hypothetical scenarios of who definitely is and who definitely is not a sellout. The question, as it usually is, is... <laughs> What about the gray area? 
And I think what it's going to boil down to, isn't it, is that there are just going to be degrees of sellouts. It's not going to be binary, this person is a sellout, this person is not, except for the extreme scenarios I just described. Outside of those highly unusual situations, everyone who makes something is going to be some degree of a sellout, right? You're going to change your ideal thing at least a little bit, probably, to try to please somebody. Or you'll do it at some point, right? At a minimum, when I was doing stand-up, I always thought of it as a Venn diagram, right? Here's the circle representing stuff that I like. Here's the circle representing stuff the audience likes. I'm going to try to operate exclusively in the overlap of those two circles. When I was doing stuff that was only in the, hey, the audience likes this circle, well, at that point, I think it's fair to say I was selling out. I was doing material I didn't really believe in because the audience was going for it. And then when I was operating only in the stuff that I like circle, well, I was bombing. So I think maybe a practical question one can ask oneself if you're trying to figure out whether you're selling out or not is, do I like this? <laughs> do I stand behind this? Does this feel right? And if the answer is yes, if the answer is yes, I think this is good. It just also happens to be stuff that other people think is good, and I've chosen to do that stuff and not other stuff that only I think is good. I think it's probably pretty fair to consider yourself not a sellout, and probably when you find yourself <laughs> making stuff that makes you think, Jesus, this is just garbage, but they're going for it, they're paying me, that is probably when you might want to consider the possibility that you have sold out. So I think there maybe is a halfway decent principle here, and I think I should express that principle in the voice of Jeff Foxworthy. If you find that you're producing work that is lucrative, but that you consider not especially worthwhile, you might be a sellout. And that is not a dig at Jeff Foxworthy. I honestly respect what he does. Hello. I'm Jeff Maurer, the Metallica of podcasting, because I've never met a metal fan who doesn't think the Metallica sold out. And this is the I Might Be Wrong podcast, the audio version of stuff that can be found on my Substack at imightberong.substack.com. And P.S., there is no way I can be a sellout because I am not nearly successful enough. One ad for mail-order coffee, for which I am seeing pennies, does not... If, th if this is what selling out is like, it sucks. If I have sold out, then I have also done it wrong. Aren't I supposed to be sitting in my mansion going, ooh, but I have no credibility? Well, where's the mansion? Where's the mansion, trade coffee? That's my question to you. Today's episode is called, Did We Learn a Single Fucking Thing from COVID? Yeah, so I wanted to write this one because I agree with the president. The pandemic is over. COVID's not gone, but the pandemic is over. I hope everybody realizes the thing that it is now, this is what it's going to be. <laughs> Whatever you're doing now, this is apparently what you're going to do for the rest of your life because it's hard for me to imagine what else might change. So it seemed like time for a retrospective, a hot wash, if I may use one of those extremely lame corporate world phrases that makes you think like, are you just trying to make management sound cool, calling it a hot wash? Have you not realized that nothing will ever make business management cool? Anyway, we're doing a hot wash. And my personal perspective is that a lot of the things that at the beginning of the pandemic, I was kind of thinking, well, okay, silver lining, the way we approach as a society, this thing or that thing, this might force us to change. 
It really feels like most of those things did not change. So the episode's called, Did We Learn a Single Fucking Thing from COVID? Subheading, my sense is, nope. I'd like to start here. Consider that everyone loves a good World War II narrative. The specifics change, but the theme's always the same. It's always a group of people come together to make the best of a bad situation. Sometimes the group of people coming together is a platoon. Sometimes it is a squadron. Sometimes it is an all-women's baseball team. A lot of times, an entire nation comes together. Americans really enjoy these narratives, and Brits love those narratives uh, a bit more than oxygen. We like these stories because they celebrate our big win, even though we should note that the main reason the Allies won World War II was that Hitler tripped over a pile of frozen Russian corpses on his way to Moscow. The U.S. and U.K. suffered about 400,000 military deaths each during World War II. The Russians suffered somewhere around 10 million about twice as many as the Germans who lost. Those are numbers I think not a lot of people know, but I'm not here to talk about frozen Russian corpses. I'm here to talk about COVID. For a split second, it looked like COVID might be that kind of big, hey, let's all pull up our socks and come together kind of story. There was a moment at the very beginning of the pandemic, and yes, cheering for healthcare workers Kind of nice, but also performative and cheap. Where I was in New York, people cheered, even though in my part of town, healthcare workers could not have heard us if my building had been full of Freddie Mercury clones screaming at the top of their lungs, but we still did it. And what it did do is that signaled a desire to band together. And I did think for, again, one nanosecond, maybe, maybe this would be the moment when the nation would heal. Maybe a serious threat would compel us to drop the nonsense and start making clear-eyed decisions. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, we would stop playing who has the right to throw the biggest hissy fit for 10 fucking minutes and instead focus on what we have in common. But the pandemic is now over and we can now confidently say, nope, nope, that did not happen. American politics did not cease to be an orgy of brain-dead points scoring. We do not seem to have developed decision-making skills that will serve us well in the next crisis. When all this started, I thought maybe the presence of a science-based challenge with high stakes, maybe, maybe that would force us to move down some learning curves at an accelerated pace. And important caveat here, it is hard to assess how we did when we are 330 million individuals. I really want to stress this. This is not science. This is my general sense of, eh, if you ask me, this is kind of how it went. But despite having no value, here are my general impressions of things we could have and maybe should have learned from COVID that we did not. Thing number one, I think we sort of failed to internalize that an old person's death is not the same as a young person's death. In May of 2020, the New York Times ran the names of the 100,000 Americans who had, to that point, died of COVID under the baffling headline, U.S. deaths near 100,000, an incalculable loss. Is the 100,000 number itself not something of a calculation? 
Does anyone proofread the New York Times before they publish? I mean, I know my columns always have mistakes in them. I can't ever get rid of the typos. I really try to get rid of the typos. I can't ever seem to do it. But in fairness to me, I don't own 1.5 million square feet in midtown Manhattan that I fill with people whose job is to proofread. Anyway, they ran all the names of all the people, and it was meant to be a somber acknowledgement of COVID's enormous human toll. And it was that. But because they also put the people's ages next to their names, it was a big-time reminder that most people who die of COVID are very, very old. Now, I am opposed to old people dying. Go ahead and call me a bleeding heart liberal if you want. But I am even more against young people dying. When I worked for the EPA, I was taught a measure that captured this distinction. It's called Years of Potential Life Lost. YPLL, and there's an acronym because you use it often enough in that field that there is an acronym. It captures how many more years a person would have lived if not for the thing that killed them. So, for example, if a person was expected to live to 75, but a carcinogen caused them to die at 74, then YPLL equals 1. But if a 10-year-old dies of the same cause, YPLL equals 65. You get it. It's not rocket science. And these discussions can be, yes, a little bit gauche. Attaching a value of zero to a person's death is not an especially good look, even though mathematically that is what we did sometimes. But I do think YPLL captures an important distinction. An old person's death is simply not the same as a young person's death. I honestly don't know anyone who really disagrees with this. Brian's song would have been a different fucking movie if Brian Piccolo had been 112. Nonetheless, somehow, this distinction, many times, I would say most of the time, was completely absent from our dialogue. For what it's worth, I never saw YPLL in the New York Times or Washington Post, and I did search for it. It was not a regular part of their coverage. The distinction between older person deaths and younger person deaths was very often not part of the discussions we had, and that continued to be true as age became a confounding variable for other measures. Vaccination death rates were distorted because elderly people are more likely to be vaccinated. COVID morbidity rates were also skewed due to mandatory COVID screenings at hospitals. Conversations about closings and safety precautions, most notably in schools, were held with little to no acknowledgement that age was far and away the variable most closely associated with risk. The fact that we frequently, frequently had discussions that danced around an obvious reality with which basically everyone agrees did not bode well for our ability to have honest conversations. Thing number two that I think we failed to learn. Being pro-science <laughs> means you might have to change your opinions. Early in the pandemic, the populist right cemented their place as the undisputed champs of remaining ignorant of all evidentiary data. First, led by Trump, of course, they waved away the pandemic's severity. Next, they shunned masks due to their failure to grasp the complex scientific principle, they help a bit. 
And then, of course, vaccine skepticism was the coup de grace. When it comes to being so ideologically blinded that you barely qualify as sentient anymore, the GOP's performance was akin to what Yankee slugger Aaron Judge is doing right now, which is to say they are doing such amazing things, it is fair to ask where they rank among the all-time greats. So the Trumpy right, man, when it comes to being willfully ignorant, you're just not going to beat those people. But the Twitter left ended up posting some not-too-shabby science ignorance stats of their own. As the pandemic evolved, many people's views on mitigation measures did not. Even after vaccines, Paxlovid, better information about transmissibility, higher society-wide immunity rates, and less deadly strains of the virus became a reality. Even after all those things, some people remained as committed to masks and social distancing as they were in March of 2020. I still see people wearing masks in situations where it makes absolutely no sense. And at the risk of making snap judgments about lesbian couples walking down the street in West Hollywood, I suspect that they're liberal. I am now of the opinion that Pro-science is not a constituency with any substantial numbers. I think that people mostly believe whatever they believe, and if they get to play the holier-than-thou, you're-ignoring-science card against their opponents, then nifty. But if not, well, if not, they're still not going to change the solitary fucking thing. Thing number three, that we maybe could have internalized, maybe could have made part of our thinking going forward, but it feels like we didn't is that everything involves trade-offs. It has bothered me for a long time <laughs> that in politics, very often, being able to cite any downside to an action, that can sometimes be enough to thwart the action. I think a great example of this is the wind turbines kill birds argument. We are facing a global crisis, and we are desperate for solutions, but some people oppose windmills because they kill some birds. How many birds? They kill less than 0.1% as many birds as cats. And this podcast is strongly pro-cat, but cats sleep 23 hours a day. To say that something is a thousand times less effective than a cat, to me, that's another way to say that is not very substantial. And I think with COVID, the failure to acknowledge trade-offs was probably most palpable in the dialogue around school closings and other behaviors in schools. By 2021, we, we were getting shocking data. By early 2021, I remember it starting to roll in at about that point. Shocking data about the effects of school closings on students, especially poor students. And when we got this data, it spurred a massive reassessment of priorities in some quarters but not in others. Some people remained adamantly opposed to policy changes due to logic that goes, one child's death is too many. Now, obviously, that is a powerful card to play. I don't exactly enjoy being on team actually one child's death is acceptable. But let's be grownups here. We accept risk all the time. We accept some deaths on a society-wide level, all the time. Otherwise, if we didn't, we would have very different attitudes towards things like car travel, which has an element of danger in it, sports, which has an element of danger in it, non-COVID diseases, 
which we've been living with for a long time and we continue to live with them. This tendency towards grandstanding about children's health among some people, instead of acknowledging that there are difficult trade-offs here and with most issues involving COVID, I think that led us to make some awfully fucking bad decisions. Thing number four that I think maybe we could have learned, but it doesn't seem like we did, that is that the media has a responsibility to be scientifically literate. This is another long-standing grudge from my EPA days, and that is reporters who report on science, I think, should have a vague sense of what the fuck they're talking about. I spent so many hours on phone calls with reporters trying to get them to understand the details underlying and very often undermining their splashy headline. It was a lot like that Simpsons episode where Bart tries to explain Sideshow Bob's plot to Homer. Please look it up. It's called Bart Attempts to Explain Sideshow Bob's Plot to Homer. It is a person trying to get a thought into another person's brain and just not being able to do it. And when it comes to COVID, obviously, some reporters did a great job. Some did great. But in my opinion, the amount of sloppy, lazy, and deceiving journalism, including from credible publications, I wasn't going to offthegridnews.wikileaks.ru. We're talking legacy publications here. A lot of the reporting, in my opinion, was just not good. And The Atlantic ran an article of this type this week in a piece called The End of COVID is Still Far Worse Than We Imagined. Really keeping that flame alive, aren't you? In that article, Sarah Zhang compares COVID mortality rates unfavorably to those of the flu. Her main point is that COVID is substantially more deadly than the flu, and she notes that in the same week that President Biden declared the pandemic over, we were still recording about 400 COVID deaths a day, which is more than triple the typical mortality rate from the flu. And this is the type of true but misleading statement that liberals, we used to rail about them when they appeared on Fox News, and I think we were right to do that. Unfortunately, we embrace them frequently today. Now, it is nominally true that 400 COVID deaths a day, and for what it's worth right now, we are actually a little bit below that and trending down. Nonetheless, 400 COVID deaths a day is roughly three times the daily death rate of a pretty bad flu year. Though it should be noted that the number of people killed by the flu every year varies a lot. So that is nominally true, but there are mitigating factors that make Zhang's argument, I would say, basically not true. The first thing we should factor in is that the number of COVID deaths is almost certainly Overcounted. If you want to read a full breakdown of why that is almost certainly true, read an article in The Hill called Mandatory Hospital Screenings Fuel Inaccurate COVID Death Counts. Again, that is in The Hill. And the main thing that's going on is all hospitals test for COVID whenever you check in. If you check into the hospital with a knee injury, get a test, test positive for COVID, and then while you're in the hospital, the TV in your room falls off the wall, hits you in the head, and kills you. You go into the books as a COVID death. There's a difference between people dying of COVID and people dying with COVID. That's the first thing you got to consider. The second thing we should consider, 
is that flu deaths are not spread out evenly throughout the year. When Zhang cites the daily mortality rate for the flu, that is over the course of an entire year. But of course, most flu deaths are packed into three months in the winter. We all know this, and of course, there's also extensive data, some of which you can find on the written version of this article, extensive data showing, yep, if you die of the flu, you are almost certainly going to die in January, February, or March. And yet we have never, never treated January, February, and March as dramatically different than the other nine months. Yes, get a shot, stay home if you're sick. Those are good rules that can stick around. But nobody said, we got to shut down schools. No one can come into the office. You have to fucking shut down filming of a TV show if there's COVID. This is a gigantic problem in Hollywood, by the way. Stuff getting shut down because people have to isolate for 10 days if they get COVID. Nobody acted like this before, even though the flu's death rate is all packed into those three months. If people prior to the pandemic considered that death rate intolerable, then they would have argued for masks, social distancing, building closures, and other stuff during the winter months. To my knowledge, no human being on the entire planet did this. People arguing for those measures now are arguing for a standard of protection that was universally rejected just three years ago. And the third factor that makes Zhang's argument misleading is the fifth lesson that I think we failed to learn, and that is people bear some responsibility for their own protection. And this is such an inelegant thing to say that I devoted an entire column to carefully parsing this argument. That column is called, Not All COVID Deaths Are the Same. So you can read my argument in detail there, but the quick and dirty, fuck it, I'll just say it in English version is, if you choose not to get vaccinated and then you die, then in my opinion, your death is less tragic than the death of someone who took the reasonable precautions that were available. Phrase another way, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And if the horse then dies of dehydration, well, in my opinion, that's on the horse. And vaccine's effectiveness, that is beyond doubt. In the written version of this column, I posted a chart of the hospitalization rates from COVID for people aged 50 to 64. And one thing I really liked about this chart is it keeps the age range constant. It's all people 50 to 64. A lot of times when you see these charts, it'll just show vaxxed, unvaxxed, even though the vaccinated population is on average much older than the unvaccinated population. So of course they do a lot worse when they get COVID and that makes the vaccines, well, honestly, that just makes the vaccines look pretty damn effective. Whereas if you hold the age range constant, they look unbelievably effective, especially if you have had an initial dose and a booster. It's just night and day. The hospitalization rate, and I didn't post these numbers, but also the death rate, it's just orders of magnitude higher if you are not vaccinated. I honestly can't imagine just how much more clear a signal could possibly be. If you are vaccinated, and especially if you are vaxxed and boosted, you are just at a much, much lower risk from COVID than if you're not. And this has created an interesting situation. The Latter stages of the pandemic have seen 
an unholy coalition between anti-vaxxers and the Panic Forever crowd. The first group, the anti-vaxxers, provided the mortality rates that made the second group's crusade possible. Now, this is weird. Pussy hat-wearing members of the resistance left and QAnon loons who sleep with a paperweight that they looted from Adam Schiff's office on January 6th under their pillow. Those groups are not often mutually enabling. But they are in this case. As sometimes happens, the far left and the far right have found common ground at the single stupidest point in the universe. When I said I wanted us to come together, I did not mean like that. So when I ask myself, what is the common thread between these failures? I think the common thread is politeness. We were too polite, too afraid of looking uncouth to include uncomfortable topics in our conversations. This extreme aversion to statements that might be seen as untoward. It's probably the result of our political culture, which treats torching your opponents for any minor misstep as the highest form of personal expression. The chilling effect. We should probably change that element of how we do things. And I do think that this politeness, this over-politeness, led to a lot of bad outcomes. Omitting uncomfortable facts makes it harder to find the truth. It's a lot like leaving variables out of a math problem. You are not going to find the answer that way. If the circumference of a circle is 2 pi r, but you decide that r is problematic, so instead you decide, well, how about the circumference of a circle is just 2 pi then? That's not going to fucking work, you idiot. And neither will decisions born of conversations that dodge distressing elements. And there is, I think, still a small chance that we can learn from our COVID-era mistakes. It would be a classic learn-how-you-do-the-right-thing-by-trying-all-the-wrong-things-first situation, which, speaking for myself, is the only way I seem to ever learn anything. If we did get COVID totally wrong so that in the future we can get the World War Z virus right, well... And then maybe that was all worth it. I do hope that happens. Though if I'm being honest, I see no evidence that it will. And that's the episode. It might interest you to know that after this piece ran, I got a lot of emails, Twitter messages, etc. from good card-carrying liberals. Why do we always say that? We don't issue cards. At any rate, liberals in good standing saying to me some version of uh, yeah, when are we going <laughs> to admit this is done? It's gone as far as it can go. As I said at the beginning, whatever you're doing now, I guess you're just going to do that forever because it's hard to think of what else might change. I think that's a reality that maybe not everybody has grappled with. I hope this episode has done a small amount, small, small, small amount to make it a little more okay for liberals to say, okay, absolutely get vaccinated, take reasonable precautions in some cases, but beyond that, we're done here. I'd like to remind you to please check out my Substack at imightbewrong.substack.com. You may pay me if you so choose, but it is presently completely free. Hey, it's completely free. I got that fat advertising money rolling in now. I have 
hundreds and hundreds of cents rolling in now from my promotional empire. So yeah, pay me, don't pay me. I'm living fat either way. But do please check out the Substack. Please share the articles with your friends. I will be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you very much for listening and bye for now.